The United States imports 100% of many critical minerals that are essential for our national security and high-tech economy. I wrote about this issue in a series of blogs that I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. But before we get started and before I introduce our guest today, I want to explore why critical minerals are so important and talk a little bit about what we can do about it and then give a little bit of more background on this episode. Critical minerals are found in nearly every high-tech product that we use and love today. They create our world of abundance. For example, an iPhone is made of over 40 different elements found in dozens of different as-mined critical minerals, e.g. the rocks that come out of the ground. Lithium, cobalt, and graphite are critical to advanced batteries. The seemingly indestructible iPhone case is made of aluminum, magnesium, zinc, copper, titanium, chromium, magnesium, and many other elements. Integrated circuits and internal electronics function by pumping electrical signals through painstakingly constructed grids of gallium, arsenic, silicon, phosphorus, nitrogen, gold, copper, tantalum, etc. It's a cliche, but critical minerals are no doubt critical. And right now, the United States relies extremely heavily on our chief adversary, you guessed it, we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast so far, China. China supplies nearly 100% of some of the most important critical minerals. Take the rare earth metals, scandium or graphite, for example. If you want to learn more about the specific import-export data, and I highly recommend taking a look at it because it is extremely informative and insightful about the state of our industry, for a given element or mineral, the United States Geological Survey releases fairly comprehensive data every year for every element. Not every element pretty much every mineral that we use or that's on this critical minerals list. I'll link to this, uh, to this comprehensive database in the show notes. For a good read that dives deeper into how the United States can achieve minerals independence if we opted to as, as, an, industrial, um, and, and as, as an industrial society and a state, there's a great book that I recommend titled Groundbreaking! America's New Quest for Minerals Independence by Ned Mamula and Ann Bridges. Apologies if I butchered either of those names. One of the most fundamental shifts that we need to make in order to achieve minerals independence is opening physical mines to dig these critical minerals out of the ground domestically, taking advantage of the United States' robust minerals endowment. Uh, Mamula and Bridges talk about this United States robust minerals endowment in their book, so I highly recommend taking a read. Um, But this all comes back to the where stuff comes from concept. Everything we know, everything we use comes from somewhere physically in the ground. And the first step to achieving a robust and secure minerals stuff chain is to actually bring the mining and and the physical removal of that stuff from the ground back to the United States. Anywho, I wanted to learn more about the work being done by frontline industrialists to actually move the United States away from minerals of vulnerability and towards minerals independence. This really important concept, again, Mula and Bridges talk about it in their book. On this episode, because I wanted to learn more from frontline industrialists who are actually helping the United States move from minerals vulnerability towards mineral independence, uh, I reached out and then sat down with Penny Althaus, the CEO of USA Rare Earths. Penny is a mining executive with decades of experience capitalizing and setting up new mining operations. USA Rare Earths is building an integrated mine to magnet rare earth supply chain based somewhere in the United States. Location is to be is to be 
is to be fleshed out for the individual components, as you'll hear in this episode. Um, but USA Rare Earths owns the rights to a rich, one of the richest critical minerals deposits in West Texas. Uh, and they're building an innovative processing facility to take these minerals, these rocks that come out of the ground, and turn it into the, the metals that we need to go make rare earth products like magnets. Uh, and recently, in 2020, they bought the capital equipment for one of the only working rare earth magnet production lines in the United States. You'll hear more about that in the episode as well. So without further ado, I'll hand the mic back over to myself and Penny and get the conversation rolling. Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast. And eventually you'll hear this on another thread of mine called the Where Stuff Comes From podcast. Today I have an amazing guest. Um, I would love to ask you, Penny, welcome to the show. I'd love to start by asking you, as we head into 2021, it's been a crazy 2020. And, and honestly, it's been a pretty nutty decade. Uh, if we think back all the way back to where we were in 2010, a little bit before that, 2008, 2009. Uh, it's been a really nutty decade. So heading into 2021, heading into to the second year of this promising uh, yet somewhat frightening decade, um, I'd love to ask you, who are you? How do you describe yourself? And what are you most excited about heading into 2021? Who am I? Uh, that's, the, that's the question that uh, you've gone all Freud on me, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, my background, uh, Orthodox Jewish family, uh, born in Australia, um, left Australia in 1992, uh, was uh, deployed in different parts of the world uh, as an emissary of the organization, uh, the religious organization uh, Chabad, and originally uh, got my rabbinical degree, and uh, although uh, I sort of knew fairly early on that I, I wasn't cut out for the cloth. So it was more sort of the belief in, in the overall uh, uh, tasks and work that the organization was doing. Um, and then uh, got married in New York, settled down here, um, and uh, just a, a regular guy trying to go about my life, keep head above water. And, uh, of course, you know, family being the, uh, the primary focus. Uh, so uh, not very complex, but uh, I guess everything today is fairly complex if we're trying to stick within the norm. And, and what are you most excited about as we head into the new year from a, from a professional standpoint? You, you are the, the founder of an organization called USA Rare Earths. You work on some really exciting projects in the critical minerals, mining, uh, and, and other components of kind of the value chain uh, from, a, from a capitalist and funding perspective. So what are you most excited about as we head into this year? Yeah, I think we're at the beginning of, uh, of, a, of a new era here, um, an era where uh, the United States and uh, other countries outside of China are starting to become very cognizant of the fact that we require various materials for advanced manufacturing and specifically in the renewables. Um, so uh, we're seeing sort of uh, uh, reports daily now about companies uh, that are either uh, moving to sort of electrifying uh, vehicles from the traditional auto manufacturers. Uh, we're hearing new companies like Apple that are entering the sector. So sort of EVs are, are definitely the way of the future. There's regulations in many countries around the world and in various states here within the United States as well about the move away from uh, gasoline-fueled cars to electric cars by 2030, 2035. So there's no question uh, the way the future is sort of um, with a focus on uh, climate and on 
related issues. So uh, whether it's electric vehicles or renewables, we need to have the raw materials to manufacture those. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have those materials. And when I say we, uh, no one outside of China really has this uh, these materials in enough quantities or has the uh, processing technology to actually uh, bring these materials into a state where it can be applied to uh, these uh, high-tech applications. Uh, so what we need to do both in the United States and elsewhere around the world is uh, develop a secure supply chain of rare earths, lithium and other critical minerals needed for advanced manufacturing. And, and these, uh, these materials are ubiquitous whether we know it or not. And admittedly, several years ago before I got involved in this company, I wasn't aware that the cell phone that I was holding had permanent magnets or the laptop I was using or the medical equipment when I went to the doctor, uh, let alone defense applications, key defense applications, and of course, sort of EVs and, and renewables. And the fact of the matter is, is you cannot manufacture most things high tech today or advanced technology today without these so the focus over the next uh, decade or so is going to be very much around a secure supply chain of these materials outside of China. And you are doing some really important work in this space. To paint a, a picture for the audience of, of, of how, how I am hoping to direct this conversation, well, I'll just start with a fact. So you, you mentioned iPhones, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Penny, but I believe that in one iPhone, there's 40 different elements that need to be sourced, processed, uh, integrated, and then delivered to a consumer in the package of an iPhone. Uh, and a lot of those are some of the rare earths that you're, that you're working so hard to bring to fruition. So the way that, I, that I'm hoping that this conversation goes, just to guide the audience and, and focus, uh, is, is first, how do we understand and how do we as entrepreneurs, innovators, and industrialists understand and think about where our stuff comes from? Um, how, would it, how, do we, how do we go about getting it, in, getting it out of the ground? How do we go about the funding for getting it out of the ground? How do we go about knowing where these things are located in the ground? Um, so really understanding that, that value chain uh, that you're working hard to shore up in the United States. Uh, within that, I'd love to kind of touch on some of the geopolitical uh, considerations that people need to think about. Then I'd love to shift more specifically into your company and, and what your company is doing and why your company is a great model for how the United States can start moving away from Chinese production. And then as always, I, I'll, I'll dive in and, and try to understand a little bit more about you and your background. Um, with that said, uh, could you take us back one step, take us away from critical minerals and kind of break down when you have a mine and you have materials that need to come out of the ground. How does that process work from, from, from conception, people thinking, Hey, there might be gold out in California to the actual discovery of the gold to the actual mining for the gold. And then what needs to happen after that, when it comes to processing? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it uh, in a very general way, you know, mining of any materials works uh, through the same function of somebody having the uh, the courage, if you will, to go into a place that has some indication that there are minerals there without necessarily knowing uh, what the quantities are, what the grades are, whether it's economically viable, and having to put a lot of very speculative and risk high-risk money into the initial phases of doing uh, geophysical work and uh, various uh, other work around geology sort of to test it, sampling, etc. And then once you get past that phase, you get into the drilling phase uh, of trying to uh, ascertain 
what type of resource you have, the quantity of whatever the material you're looking for, the grades, and through the more and more drilling that determines whether or not a project is economically viable. And it takes a, a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of patience to bring a project all the way from what we call green fields or early stage exploration to a production project. Um, very few projects make it all the way through to production, I think, and uh, I may be incorrect over here, but I think less than 1% of the projects uh, actually make it all the way from exploration into production, and that's why the commodity prices are what they are, because these things are, are difficult uh, to find in economic quantities and then develop. And, uh, of course, the key difference with rare earths is the ability then to be able to process them. So we have you know, technology around the world or processing methods that have been around for many years in gold and copper and other precious and base metals. Rare earths are a different animal. And um, you know, some of the background, which I'm happy to go into with, with rare earths in particular, you know, the United States used to be the key producer uh, of rare earth elements and also the, the key sort of country for processing uh, rare earths. And then around 30 years ago, China understanding very well and, and very much ahead of the curve that rare earth elements are going to be used for advanced manufacturing, came to the United States, acquired the processing technology, moved the personnel and the technology to China. There, their people were trained. They became the processing experts around the world, and that enabled them to develop their minds um, as well, and then to develop the uh, the processing along with those minds. And the premier of China at the time, uh, Deng Xiaoping, made a statement in, in 1992. He said the Middle East has oil, China has rare earths. And I wonder how many people around the world understood what he was saying. And essentially what he was saying is that rare earth minerals are going to be the, the oil of the future, if you will, and even greater than the oil of the future because oil powers various things, whereas rare earth elements are actually key components in being able to manufacture things. Um, so we have a, a lot of catching up. Um, we're three decades behind and many, many billions of dollars behind China in both developing mines and the processing capabilities uh, to be able to at least have uh, a secure supply chain of materials without the sole reliance on China. A few, a few uh, questions to drill down into all of that. I'll, I'll start by asking when a rare earth comes out of the ground, uh, uh, maybe maybe we can clear up some confusion. I haven't talked about this topic too much on the podcast in the past, so maybe we can just clear up some confusion. When when you say rare earths, rare earths aren't actually rare on Earth. Um, could, you, could you maybe talk about that point just just a little bit? How that nomenclature came to be and clear that up for people. Yeah, so I mean, rare earths are more common than uh, than we know. Um, you know, you have rare earths and. You know, you may have them in your backyard, um, you know, under the soil. The question is, um, what rare earths do you have and are they there in economic quantities? Um, so for the most part, they're not. So, you know, the rare earth projects that are in production are where you've got sort of a, a mass of rare earths that are in an economic uh, or an economically viable grade that makes it worthwhile to extract them. So obviously mining is not a, a cheap process and, and processing these materials isn't cheap. So you've got to have the right quantities of materials coupled with the right grade. So whilst they're not rare per se, I think finding them in, in quantities that you can actually produce them in economically is rare. And these are, there are 17 rare earths um, and you've got obviously four rare earths or five 
pending for what we call the permanent magnets, which are the things that go into the uh, the various applications we spoke about. And obviously, different applications have sort of different magnets in them, some with heavies and lights, some with just light rare earths. Um, but you're right. I mean, the question is, is finding them in the right quantities. And then using my material science uh, brain for a second, could could you... Uh, could you ex- just explain why rare earths po- po- you know possess unique properties that we can't get from other other elements on that pretty massive 130 some 118 some uh, element periodic table so w- what is it about rare earths that make them so special uh, from a from a manufacturing and from a physics background well it's all about it's all about the magnet capabilities so they've got many many times the strength uh, the magnetic strength of your traditional magnets and it's all about the, the uh, high strength, high temperature magnets um, that enable these, uh, whether it's a, an F-35 striker jet, which has close to a ton of rare earths in it, or your cell phone, which has very small, a very small amount of rare earths in them that is responsible for your cell phone being able to vibrate, do other things. So they have uh, unique properties that other materials don't have. And uh, what's interesting is, and you're going to get out of the scope of my understanding as well here shortly, is that different applications require different magnets um, and just depending on the application. So the magnets you have in a cell phone have some similarities to a magnet you've got in an electric vehicle, but obviously, you know, very different um, in terms of the way that the magnets are processed as well. And uh, we need these. I mean, there are companies around the world looking to manufacture EVs without the requirements for rare earth materials. But, um, and we've had a look at some of these studies, um, quite frankly, they just don't operate with the same efficiency and, or the same thrust in the case of an electric vehicle. Um, so we really need these for the future of manufacturing. I mean, there's an interesting case study with Tesla. I, I believe early on, Tesla tried to stay away from, from the rare earths. You might, you might be able to correct me here, but I believe Tesla tried to stay away from the rare earths. And, and for folks in the audience who aren't too familiar, rare earths, you use them in the motor to kind of drive the motor shaft with the current that's coming out from the battery. Um, but Tesla, I believe, tried to stay away from rare earths and used, used coils uh, in their electric motors. I'm blanking on, on what the motor terminology is. My, uh, my power electronics professor would probably, uh, probably slap me across the face right now. Um, but they, then they switched back to rare earths, I believe, for the Model 3 because they couldn't achieve the, the cost parity that they needed uh, and, the pow- and kind of the, the power output parity that they needed at that cost level for the Model 3s without using these rare earths. Um, so, so it's really interesting how important rare earths are and how novel they are. These aren't materials that we can just make by smashing atoms together in a uh, particle accelerator, because that would be even more expensive than having to go find them in your backyard. Um, so these are real Yeah, physically... I, thought, I thought you were going to ask me about finding rare earths on the moon, which people are talking about. And, uh, <laughs> you know. my, my, my last podcast guest and I, we were talking about... Um, It'll come out shortly before our, our conversation now. We were talking about uh, great power competition in space and kind of why China and the U.S. are both really interested in going to the moon. And it's not so much about the adventure. Uh, we, I mean, we, it's a lot about the adventure, but there's a big piece of it, too, which is about the resources that you have access to. I, I might, I'm not even a little bit, I, don't, I have no idea about what rare earths are on the moon, but there is a big, a big push to get to the moon because we need helium-3 if we're ever going to have uh, fusion be a viable energy, alternative energy source. Um, back down here on Earth because we don't have substantial helium-3 quanti- uh, quantities. Um, 
back to the rare earth topic, do you think that you could maybe rattle off in addition to, to magnets? I know that yttrium is really important for, for laser, for laser applications and possibly for like fiber optics cables. Could you just rattle off a few applications in addition to electric vehicles and, and F-35s just so people can get a sense of how these rare earths really are critical to anything they're going to be doing in innovation and anything they're going to even be doing while living their day-to-day lives? Yeah, well, why don't I start off by something that's, uh, I guess, very apropos for the time. And this is, in fact, um, the rare earth uh, minerals uh, have been factored into various COVID bills coming out of Congress. And one of the reasons um, is because of the rare earths that are contained within medical equipment. So a lot of the scanning devices, your uh, MRIs, your CT scanners, your PT scanners, they have rare earth magnets in them to make them function. And without those materials... Um, you cannot, you don't have those uh, those medical applications, and I think one of the things that's happened during you know the COVID virus is there's been a, an emphasis on the part of the U.S. government to look at the vulnerability of the supply chain when it comes to PPEs and medical devices and things like that, where our medicine is being manufactured. I know you're going to get soon to the topic of you know where things come from. I mean, people you know may not be aware of where our antibiotics are manufactured, etc. But, you know, just medical equipment for one, and there are actually nine rare earths, and uh, you're not going to put me on the spot and ask me which ones for what, but there are nine rare earths that are used in various medical equipment. Um, And then, of course, you know, I mean, your laptop has rare earths in them, and your your cars have rare earths in them, even the ones that aren't electric uh, all the way, they've got rare earths contained within them. So, uh, you know, I've seen a figure, and and, uh, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but uh, close to 50% of imports into the United States contain rare earth elements in them. So um, it's ubiquitous. Um, So, um, you know, if you've got a speaker in front of you, it it probably has some rare earth element in them. And, of course, if you look at military applications, most of the advanced military applications have rare earth components in them. I mean, even down to the communication devices. So it's not about a a Tomahawk cruise missile or an F-35 striker jet. It's um, literally uh, we've got rare earth surrounding us. And, um, you know, we, we, it hasn't been till recently that we've understood sort of this vulnerability in the supply chain, which in some parts was sort of fueled by the trade war with China. Um, but in other parts, it was the vulnerability of the supply chain as a result of COVID. And, you know, to me, I, I sort of buy into the latter. Um, and I think that's starting to prove out with the data coming out of China that this is nothing to do with a trade war. Um, I mean, Back in 2010, when uh, China withheld rare earth exports from Japan for 40 days, so at that time, Japan and the United States and others were able to go to the WTO, and in fact, China had to resume rare earth exports to Japan. But that's because China had it in abundance, so it was somewhat of a, a nefarious act of contravening sort of what WTO members are required to do. That's changed today. Uh, China had become a net importer of rare earths uh, as of 2018, and as part of Made in China 2025 and the Belt and Road Initiative, they plan to maintain a stranglehold on rare earths and critical minerals because that's the backbone of manufacturing, and they intend to stay as the uh, sort of global superpower, if you will, of manufacturing and uh, exporting finished goods. So, um, you know, I think it's time that we become very cognizant of where these materials are coming from and what their uses are, because it's ubiquitous. So my understanding is right now, 100% of the rare earth imports to the United States come from or through China. Uh, So not necessarily talking about everything that's mined, but all of the processed and finished goods that come into the United States containing rare earths do in fact come from China. Is that something that, is that sound accurate, that statistic? 
Well, when you say it comes from China, there's some Chinese involvement along the way. So um, whether it's uh, the processing side, whether it's the magnets, whether it's the metals and alloys part of it, it, it all touches China at some point along the process. And, and something else that I thought was crazy was that there is a mine, there's one mine in the United States right now that you're working to, to change this, uh, obviously through USA rare earths, but there's one mine in the United States that's currently operational that mines rare earths. That's the, the, M, the mountain pass mine in, in California operated by MP materials. Um, my understanding is that they still send those that mine rare earth product over to China to have them process it in China and then bring the finished goods back to the United States. So can you maybe paint a picture for us on a, on a, from a geopolitical stand, stance and from a trade war stance, what the current, um, in it, you've, you've done a little bit of this already, but if you can go a little bit deeper and explain where we are now in terms of this rare earths conundrum that we have, where we are 100% dependent on China to touch every finished good rare earth that comes into the U- back into the U.S., um, and where we're going when it comes to some of the initiatives that the United States is taking to, to combat this and bring rare earth supply chains back to the United States. Yeah, I mean, as far as MP materials, so they're primarily producing cerium and lanthanum, and uh, they intend to be uh, producing ND and PR at a greater scale as well. So two of the the magnet materials, and it would be uh, very good for the country to actually have a supply of of ND and PR. And, of course, you know, cerium and lanthanum is used in in some areas uh, as well. Um, I think, you know, the materials that MP is sending uh, to Shanghai in China for processing uh, those materials, most, if not all, are actually staying there and uh, whatever's coming back, there are significant tariffs as well. Um, I heard as much as 40% tariffs on the processing uh, that is done in China uh, for these materials. Um, but, you know, MP is intending, and I think that was part of the, uh, the funding or the majority of the funding that they recently did through the SPAC transaction, uh, to re-establish uh, processing here, and I think that'll be a, a great advantage for the United States as a whole to have uh, processing capabilities. But that being said, I mean, um, the demand for materials, and again, MP is, is limited to the materials that they have. They're not a heavy rare earth project, which means they have sort of pieces of the puzzle. Um, and what I've been trying to convey, you know, to everyone we speak to is, there is no one project or one company that's going to put China out of business, and there's no one company or one project that's going to be able to meet global demand or, in fact, uh, just uh, U.S. demand for materials. So um, we need as many uh, mines coming online as possible. Uh, It takes many, many years to develop these projects and and many tens of millions of dollars um, just to get to the stage where you've got an economically viable resource and then, in some cases, hundreds of millions or billions uh, to take them into production. Um, So I think, you know, we need... Uh, multiple projects coming online and uh, light rare earths, heavy rare earths. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're doing and and the United States government is focused on now is uh, getting behind a domestic uh, rare earth supply chain so that mining, processing, metals making and magnet manufacturing happens here within the U.S. without the materials ever leaving the United States. And that's one of the things that that we're working on here and happy to expound on that at the appropriate time. One of the things I'm, I'm fascinated by, and we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, is how the defense industry, and particularly the United States Department of Defense, can be a real uh, powerful um, 
profit-driven catalyst for innovation and for new uh, manufacturing, advanced manufacturing initiatives um, in the United States. And I am keenly familiar and aware that that the DOD recently awarded several grants to different rare earth projects because they realized the strategic importance of developing these these different projects uh, in the U.S. Could you, could you maybe share a little bit uh, about how that kind of DOD innovation resource via non-dilutive funding or DOD contracts is kind of playing out and helping to prop up, not, not prop up, I don't like the word prop up, but, but accelerate this, this industry at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing to point out, and the Pentagon will be the first ones to confirm this, that overall uh, they account for very low single digits of overall uh, rare earth imports into the U.S. So uh, there's this misnomer out there that uh, somehow, you know, if you've got a project, you know, the Pentagon's going to buy everything you have to manufacture, and that's simply not the case. Um, it's, it's relatively small quantities to overall uh, U.S. Uh, requirements. That being said... Uh, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense has been tasked, at least at this stage, with Title III funding um, that is meant to sort of be utilized to uh, provide grants, if you will, and, and other sort of uh, ways of funding um, the supply chain all the way from mine to magnet here. Um, we're at the very early stages, if you will, or early days uh, for that effort uh, by the Pentagon. Um You'll start to see a lot more money coming out of the, uh, out of the Pentagon in the coming months and the coming years, and I think it'll not only be dispersed to U.S. projects, but I think you know we've already seen a company in Australia, Linus, get an award, a relatively small one, but an award to do a desktop analysis and a market research report to develop a heavy rare earth processing facility. And we've seen a couple of uh, companies sort of using novel approaches for magnet manufacturing who've gotten some assistance from the Pentagon as well. But I think you'll start to see that expand and what we're starting to see is it's gone beyond the pentagon as well so the department of energy has various programs as well for the development of a supply chain because of course the materials touch um you know electric vehicles and, and green applications uh, that would sort of fall more under the purview of of the department of energy and i think what you'll see under the biden administration is uh, sort of uh, an interagency approach where there are multiple agencies, whether it's DOD, DOE, Commerce, Trade, Interior, of course, because the critical minerals list comes out of Interior, as does some of the permitting with the federal side to it. So I think you'll start to see sort of a, a, a very uh, sort of ramped up effort, if you will, um, not just out of the Pentagon, but out of various uh, departments in government, um, especially over the course of, of 2021. A few a few questions to 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 loop back around to to the actual mine uh, you know facilitating of the mine. So another common misconception that I that I've heard a lot of is the United States just doesn't have these materials in our in our geographical bounds. Could you talk about what the you know ge geological availability is within the ge geography of the United States? Yeah, I mean the United States has rare earths and uh, it's got them in abundance. The issue has been that because uh, outside of MP and under sort of their, their predecessor, Mollycorp, there wasn't a lot of development done over the past 30 years. And, you know, the, the sort of reasoning behind it, as I alluded to earlier, you know, that China came in and purchased the processing technology 30 years ago, the thought at the time was, you know, mining and processing rare earths is a dirty business. 
let China do it all buy the materials from China on the cheap. And that was a, a very naive and, and short-sighted approach. Um, and uh, the bottom line is, is that um, there are a number of rare earth projects in the U.S., in Canada, Australia, and elsewhere, but in the U.S., there are some projects, um, some which may prove out to be economically viable, others which may not. Um, but what's happened here is, is that, you know, and I'm starting to hear this as well from, uh, you know, from, from people that we talk to, there's an enthusiasm to invest in a domestic rare earth sector. So when companies are coming online and they've got good results and you've got a choice between sort of an investment in, in one thing and now an investment in a rare earth project, uh, the rare earth projects as they did, you know, in 2010, which was sort of the last time the rare earths had this exciting period, although not the same set of circumstances today, but you're starting to see investors um, very much look for exposure to investments in the rare earth sector. We've seen that with the success of the, uh, the MP uh, uh, SPAC transaction that happened recently. So we do have some resources here. Um, we definitely don't have sufficient resources. Um, I mean, if you look at the comparison to Australia, which have a number of uh, projects that are, uh, well, in the case of Linus, in production and still continuing to develop and expand. But in the case of companies like Northern Minerals, Arafura, um, you've got a number of projects there that are being developed. Australians generally have a, a better understanding of mining and uh, sort of ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to mining and developing projects. Um, but we've got to sort of take a cue from that. And I get sent materials very frequently from people around the U.S., where testing was done for rare earth minerals back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, they're sending me the data they have from them and, you know, looking for assistance with potentially developing these projects. I mean, it's it's too many to go through with the folks that we've got, um, but uh, some of them may turn out into standout projects, but it's going to take dollars to go into it. Now, that being said, I mean, you're asking about the Pentagon's function and the U.S. government as a whole, the function in terms of, you know, funding these things. I don't think anyone would be suggesting that you take projects that are not economically viable. Uh, we're not quite at wartime yet, right? You see, taking projects that uh, would operate at a significant loss and somehow the, the government or the Pentagon is going to, you know, write out a check to stand these projects up. In fact, you know, when the Pentagon look at these things, they're looking at these projects to be at the feasibility study stage where the economics of the project have already been established and now you're looking for some impact just, if you will, from the government. But actually, in, in some respects, um, the funding from the Pentagon is, and, and from the government is one thing. I think what's extremely important are the various bills and legislation that, that have started to come out of Congress and some which have been proposed. So you've got the, the NDAA and you've got other bills that have come out recently. You've got the Critical Minerals Caucus in the House. You've got the uh, Bipartisan Rare Act. And what those bills do is not only sort of provide uh, investors with confidence and with an incentive to invest in, in uh, US-based rare earth companies, but they also provide sort of, um, uh, I would say, protections against China potentially manipulating the market. So in the case of the Rare Act, you're talking about significant tax incentives for companies, you know, all the way from mine through to Magnet, and that's not a case of, you know, uh, the, the US government writing out a check to get a project up and running, but rather assisting with the bottom line and providing some downside protection in the event that there is a fluctuation, a fluctuation uh, in rare earth prices. And uh, I guess one of the questions, you know, we've been asked frequently is, well, what happens if China dumps you know, rare earth materials on the market and floods the market. Well, that's not going to happen because China are actually running around looking for additional supplies of these materials. So I don't think we have a question about that. But we are trying to counter sort of 
the subsidy system that China works off where the, the CCP is subsidising the bank, the bank subsidising the mine, the mine subsidising the processing facility to, to make it more of a level playing field. Um, so I think the, the legislation and, and the various bills that are being that have either come out or are being introduced or being contemplated are extremely important and, and it, it, very glad to see it's a bipartisan issue. And, uh, in fact, you know, one of the ways that we've been sort of able to appeal to, to people on both sides of the aisle is, you know, exactly what you're going to be heading into shortly here on the podcast, which is where are these materials coming from? And sort of, you know, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. But um, I think the education process that members of Congress have gone through in the past year and a half or so uh, has been an eye-opener for them. I mean, we speak to, to many members of Congress, some of which, you know, didn't have a lot of clue, as, as did I, you know, two years ago, you know, what these materials are, where they come from, and now understand this is uh, absolutely critical to the future of this country from a national security and an economic standpoint. Beautiful. I I I, I want to really drive that point home for for the audience that that something I, I on this podcast when we do talk about the DoD and we talk about the government, uh, I, we really aren't coming at it from the perspective of the the government needs to regulate or subsidize. We're coming at from from a perspective of how can the DoD incentivize through dual dual use technologies, dual use programming. Hey, this startup is really really promising. How can we accelerate that startup and and at the same time do a better job of securing national security by giving them an SBIR grant or some funding through something like uh, the Air Force's Afworks Ventures program, uh, which is a really phenomenal program in my opinion. Uh, so it's awesome to hear that that kind of deregulatory and incentivizing mindset is really coming to this rare earth problem and to this, this rare earth's conundrum and helping to answer that question of where does our stuff come from with in 10 years from now, hopefully it's, it comes from America because we need to have our national security and our, and our economic security secured. Um, two more questions on the, on the kind of mining theme and on the more macro critical minerals and rare earths theme. What are the economic drivers that help make a mine viable or that can, you know, put a mine in the ground? How, can you help our, our audience understand, like, what are the, the keys, the, the magic ingredients that need to come together to help make a mine, say, round top or, M, or MP materials at Mountain Pass? What, what needs to happen to make a mine economically viable? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. There's uh, the composition of the materials. And when I say the composition of materials, uh, the grade, um, but the economics of extracting those materials. So... There are really no two rare earth projects that are exactly the same. I mean, if you're looking at a gold project, you can find a lot of similarities between different projects. When you're looking at rare earth projects, I mean, just to give you an example, um, if you look at sort of the two companies that we benchmark against, you know, Linus and, and MP, um, the basket price for the materials being produced is a big factor. So we've actually got a lower grade in terms of uh, the actual rare earth grade itself at uh, a round top but our economics are vastly different for different for a number of reasons so for example um the basket price what we call the reo the rare earth oxide basket price for materials coming out of mp is 11 dollars a kilo uh, the basket price for materials that linus is producing is 18 dollars a kilo so it's based on the materials they're producing so in the case of mp you know, they're producing a lot of cerium melanthanin, which sells for about $1.50 a kilo. Uh, you know, obviously, ND and PR sell for more than that, um, I think $70 a kilo. But, you know, if you look at the, the basket price of the materials at Roundtop, our sells for $70 a kilo. 
um, because we're dealing with some of the heavies that are selling in the hundreds of dollars a kilo, some of the heavy rarers like Dysposium, Terbium, Yttrium, etc. And then you couple with that what the mining and operating costs are. So, for example, you know, if you're producing or if you're mining at uh, MP or at Mount World's, uh, the, the Linus project, you know, you're pulling out the materials and then the rest of what you're pulling out is, is barren earth. Um, so it may not have mineralization. So the cost of pulling out the waste alongside the materials factors into the economics. Because at Roundtop, we've got the diversity of the lithium, uh, aluminum sulfide, uh, and other sort of niche tech and industrial materials there, we have almost no waste, which is a very unique circumstance to have. So not only are the basket price for our materials significantly higher than those two projects, um, we have the diversity. We've got what's called a polymetallic project where you've got more than one material or numerous materials. So we're pulling out materials of value with the rare earths. So you create what's called an, a, a grade equivalent, if you will. So you take all the materials, what they factor into in terms of the value, and then you can sort of compare the grades. So it's very much about, on the mining side, looking at the bottom line, not the top line. Um, and then, of course, you've got the economics of processing. So what does it cost you to process your materials? And those are the two drivers. So you have to have a good mining project to start with, and then you have to have a good press processing technique. Um, if you don't have those two things, the project won't be viable. When it, when it comes to the mining project, um, and I'm going to loop this back into innovation in, in one second, but when it comes to, or I guess in the next question, but when it comes to the mining project, what are some of the more macro macro inputs that kind of make a mining project a mining project that can work versus a mining project that won't work when it comes to where it's located from a regulatory perspective and also from a what existing infrastructure is around from a, you know, what does the labor base look like from a what, how skilled are the laborers that you need? All of those different types of kind of macro considerations that we might not necessarily think about when we think about where our stuff comes from, but it's also really an, a really important piece of the puzzle when you're thinking about, okay, we, maybe we have these materials in the ground in the United States, but do we have the workforce who can actually go and, and help get these materials out of the grounds and this, this type of thing? Yeah, and it's a good question. And I mean, every mining project has those considerations. So when you look at a mining project and an investor or a potential you know, operator is coming in and looking at what's involved in a mining project, they look at many things. You look at what jurisdiction is it in? So, you know, if you're looking at projects outside the United States, is it a jurisdiction where, you know, that's favorable to overseas investors, that there are protections in place if something goes wrong? Is there a, a, a bilateral investment treaty with the U.S.? so that the U.S. investors are protected, a free trade agreement with the United States. So you look at sort of the in-country risk when you're outside the United States. When you're in the United States, and permitting is one of the greatest risks in any mining project, you look at the jurisdiction. So are you under federal permitting? Are you under state permitting? If you're under state permitting, is it a, uh, you know, a state like Wyoming? Is it a state like Texas? Or is it a state like New Mexico or California? So there are different things to consider. And even within those jurisdictions itself, it gets down to the various permitting bodies that you'd be dealing with. Um, but then you've got to look at the project. Does it have inherent permitting issues? Are there indigenous peoples? Are there indigenous species? Are there, uh, sorry, endangered species? Are there, uh, you know, waters of America issues? So there are many, many factors when looking at a project. First off, to see if you should even be getting involved in the project, even if it's, you know, has the best economics. And we've seen recently, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, the Republican Party and President Trump and, and others sort of 
you know, who would usually be pro-mining, uh, voting against the Pebble Project um, in Alaska because of the uh, the environmental effect it would have on uh, the salmon population and other things, and that project has faced numerous issues, yet it's an extremely important and extremely economic project. So, you know, the investors in these things take those risk factors into account, and, you know, in some cases they can, can see how they can overcome permitting issues, and in other cases investors will be less sceptical. You know, for example, and that was one of the first things that we looked at, we're in the state of Texas. We have no federal um, permitting uh, that'll be required for our project. Um, we're, I mean, it doesn't get better than Texas. Uh, we're a tenant of the uh, the GLO, the General Land Office. Um, we uh, have a, a fairly straightforward uh, permitting process to go through. There's nothing untoward. Um, we have bipartisan support in the state. Um, it'll create this, the state of Texas have a royalty in the project, which will fund the state of Texas close to a half a billion dollars in the first phase of mining, job creation and various things. And in fact, in the case of our deposit, we've got uh, the Navajo uh, Nation through NTEC who are an investor in the project. So not that we're anywhere near indigenous land, but, um, you know, various things that, that a company looks at when going into a project from a permitting uh, standpoint. And then, of course, the jurisdiction as far as where is this located? Is it in a very remote area where you can't have a labour force? But labour force is, is not the biggest issue because you can build, you know, a campsite, you know, which they do in many projects around the world. But it's more what are your trucking costs um, or shipping costs to get your materials to a processing facility or to take it beyond that? So uh, location and jurisdiction are, are very important things. Uh, you touched on something which makes a big difference existing infrastructure. So one of the things that we looked at before we got in, involved in the project were all of these issues, and we saw that there's existing major infrastructure in place. So we have roads, water, rail, and power. Now, the difference between having them in place and not having them in place is, A, the permitting that you need to go through. You start building roads, you start you know, pulling power in, you start building railroads and, and various other things and, and bringing water in. And then what's the cost? So having them in place can you know, be the difference between getting involved in a project because the economics and the permitting situation is favourable to not wanting to get involved. Uh, so in our case, all these things factored into our due diligence, and we happen to be extremely lucky you know, with the fact that you know, sort of a straightforward permitting process, state of Texas, um, no federal permitting requirements, um, and, of course, having existing major infrastructure in place. Um, so, uh, you know, these things were all part of the... Uh, um, the due diligence that we did and the considerations that we undertook, as they are with uh, every mining project around the world. When you think about what the future, uh, and this is looping it back into this innovation resource thesis, when you think about the, the, the future of what a mining project and the economics, again, these macro drivers of a, of a mining project look like, um, I've been struck by how a lot of the technologies we're seeing come onto the scene have been creating uh, new capabilities and new opportunities and making things that were not previously economic, economic. For example, uh, with the, the last guest I had on the podcast, we were talking uh, pretty extensively about, about, about space technologies, particularly when it comes to GPS and it comes to communications. And one of the things that's happening now is SpaceX is putting its Starlink constellation up to try to bring uh, 5G internet to people in the most rural of areas around the world. So there's a there's a cool beta there's a cool video of a farmer I believe up in Montana who doesn't currently have any hard hardwired internet or if he has hardwired it's extremely slow, uh, 
using uh, SpaceX, SpaceX's Starlink beta to log in on his iPhone and point a satellite dish up at the sky, and then he's beaming 5G internet from SpaceX's Starlink satellite down to his, down to his dish, and now he has internet. Um, how do technologies like that, or another example that I can think of, uh, urban air mobility vehicles, where you can have a air taxi kind of hop you know, for a half hour for a lo- very low cost, where you don't have the high cost of a helicopter, but maybe you can have folks commuting from El Paso to Round Top uh, without having to live on site at, at Round Top and get there in, in you know, a quarter of the time that it would take to drive, something like this. How do those new technologies kind of play into the way that, that you or other, or other folks in the mining ecosystem uh, are thinking about the economics of mines moving into this next hyper-technology decade? Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of that, at least in our case, revolves around uh, efficiencies of processing, uh, up, uh, you know, the cost of processing various materials, how we go about it. Um, you know, and just to give you the example, in our case, we're using a processing technology called Iron Exchange. It's been around since the 1940s as part of the Manhattan Project. Uh, China uses it as well to uh, achieve high purity separations and solvent extraction cannot achieve. Um, and what we're doing is we're taking uh, an old technology and we're optimizing it for our particular project, but we're using innovative ways to do that. So whilst we don't have IP around Iron Exchange, we have IP around our method for being able to, let's say, extract the materials that are priorities that we plan to market that are high-value materials while suppressing the materials that we don't plan to market or warehouse for the time being and then can process at a, at a future date. So it, it's more for us the innovation around the, the processing techniques, but then also the metal making. So, uh, you know, having a look at how the metal making is done, there are advancements in technology there as well. And then, of course, the magnet manufacturing. For us, the most straightforward thing is the mining. It's, it's simple or straightforward contract mining. Um, and um, it's, uh, you know, the mining technology is just very, very standard, if you will, when it comes to, to round tops. So our focus hasn't been there. But, you know, there are new technologies all the time, some which have been debunked. I mean, there's been technology that's been touted around the world for many years, primarily coming out of the former Soviet Union of satellites being able to do uh, sort of almost like X-ray imaging or what we do with EM surveys, being able to see through the ground, detect the mineralization. I've seen a number of those, um, none that have sort of been used or proven to operate thus far. And I see new mining technologies. I've even uh, seen AI for the way that um, exploration work is done. Um, I haven't used them myself. Uh, I'm somewhat familiar with some of the offerings, but, um, you know, again, for us, it's, it's very much processing focused uh, at the present time, with the rest being somewhat straightforward. Getting more tactical into USA Rare Earths, we've done a thank you so much for painting kind of this macro picture of what are rare earths and where do they kind of come from and how does this whole esoteric mining thing that, uh, that us millennials and, and Gen Z folks don't necessarily always think about. Uh, we kind of just have an iPhone. It's like, okay, I have an iPhone. I'm just going to go to the store. It broke. I'm going to go buy another one. We don't really think about what the iPhone actually is and where it comes from. And I think this previous part of the conversation did a really cool job of, of exploring that. Now I'd like to get more tactical on one particular mine that USA Rare Earths is is planning to operate um, at Roundtop. So could you could you tell us at a high level what is USA Rare Earths? What is your mission, um, and where where are you operating, and what are you operating? We've touched on a lot of this, but if you could just summarize, uh, and then we can dive into some more specific questions on the company. 
Sure. Uh, you know, the challenge has been um, sort of if you've got the mine, not necessarily having the processing capabilities. If you've got the processing, it has to go through a metals making process. And then, of course, the, the uh, final sort of process, which is the, the manufacturing of the permanent or the, uh, the sintered neomagnets or the permanent magnets, as we call them, or in some cases, they're NDFEB magnets. Um, so, you know, as in the case of MP right now, they're, they're mining, but they're sending materials to China for processing. So now they're working on implementing a, the, their processing capabilities. What we've done is it originally started off for us as a, a mine, yet we had an insight into, uh, based on the work that uh, our joint venture partner, Texas Mineral Resources, had done, we had an insight into um, the way the metallurgy uh, the way that the materials respond to, for example, heat leaching um, and, and other sort of processing methods, which, so we didn't look at the mine isolated, we looked at the mine and what can we do around the processing that doesn't involve sending the materials to China. So what we're doing is we're essentially re-establishing a domestic supply chain and we're the first company outside of China to actually have a mine-to-magnet solution that's being implemented in a practical way, not sort of just talking about wanting to have a, a mine-to-magnet solution. And it starts with the round-top deposit in Texas, and it's uh, an extremely unique deposit. In fact, when we initially did our due diligence on this and we were introduced you know, to the company or to TMRC and had a, an opportunity to invest in the project, the group that we brought in to do the technical due diligence described it as a unicorn, and, and it really is a unicorn. I mean... Um, you've got 16 of the 17 rare earths. You've got a tremendous amount of lithium. You've got aluminum sulfate. You've got hafnium, gallium. You've got some very niche materials, some which will be used for the 5G network. And in light of the ban on Huawei, I don't think China's going to be sending the United States these raw materials or other countries that ban Huawei for that matter. So we have to have a, a, a secure supply of these materials. So what you've got is you've got the project comprised of a third rare earth a third lithium, and then 10% aluminum sulfate, and then a, a breakdown of other sort of, as I mentioned, niche and, uh, in, uh, tech and industrial materials. But in the rare earths itself, we have 16 of the 17. And importantly, we've got a very high concentration of what we call the heavy rare earths, so like yttrium, terbium, dysposium. Um, these are rare earths that sell in the hundreds of dollars a kilo and are very key in uh, advanced manufacturing and for uh, high-temperature magnets. Um, and then we've got a... Uh, then we've got the other third of the project is lithium. Um, so we've got um, a significant uh, lithium resource there as well. So the project behind me, oh, actually, if they're on the podcast, I can't see it, but it's a 130-year mine life. And the economics that you do in a feasibility study are done in as a sort of a 20-year mine plan. Um, and our 43-101 compliant PEA that was put out in 2019 was actually done as the first 20-year mine plan. The project has been completely drilled out. So it's had about $70 million of drilling that's gone into it. And could you, um, could you just explain that real quick when you say drilled out? Do you mean that it's been tested? And uh, could you explain that? Yeah. So, in order to, so we have uh, two, I would say, general compliance standards around the world for being able to report resources. So, without getting too much into the history of mining, but it is, I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Gold with uh, Matthew McConaughey. But that'll give you a bit of an insight into the background as to why we have compliance standards. But there was a scandal, I think, in 1995 by a company called Briex, 
where a resource was supposedly reported because companies used to report their own resources as well and it turned out to be fictitious and it led to sort of a collapse and uh, not just a collapse of the company but a collapse in the belief system as to how mining companies are reporting resources given that there was no you know standards if you will so in some parts of the world you have something called JORC, J-O-R-C, so a JORC compliant resource. And in North America, and this is actually named after a Canadian filing, it's called a, an NI, a National Instruments 43101 compliant. So what what that involves is is you have to have a PGO or a certified professional licensed geologist on site. And they it's very much sort of a chain of custody. So you drill in the ground, you pull, pull out the core. And the drilling is done in intervals of 50 metres or 100 metres, and just depending on how tight those intervals are, that upgrades the category of the resource. You have inferred, which is the lowest category, then indicated, then uh, measured, and then it goes into uh, proven, and, and it goes into what we call the reserves category. So the more drilling you do and the closer the drilling is together, the more established the resource is, where you've pretty much got what you call your resource estimate or your reserves that you have. And um, the, the mountains, when I talk about sort of having, you know, uh, $70 million and 160,000 feet of drilling done, the mountain behind me is, uh, you know, 1,250-foot mountain. It has been drilled out entirely, which means no more drilling needs to be done in order to establish the extent of the resource. We've got $22 billion in materials that are confirmed within the mountain. But then it comes down to, well, you're not pulling out $22 billion in materials in one shot or even the first 20 years. It's what's the most efficient way to do it, how many tonne per day, you know, is your operation. So our operation, based off the 2019 uh, PEA, is a 20,000-tonne-per-day operation, which is relatively small. So we have room to scale up, and based on the demand of the various materials that we're intending to produce, we likely will scale up, maybe even higher, 30 or 40,000 tonne to begin with. Um, and then what that does is it shortens the mine life, but it increases the economics because you're pulling more out and somewhat increases the capex. But, you know, that, that's a conversation for another time. So the money has gone in and as the drilling has been done completely and the resource has been established. So we have 130-year mine life. We have more than enough materials to provide the Department of Defence with what it requires for the foreseeable future. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it goes well beyond sort of what you know, requirements are for defence applications. So we'll also be producing about 15,000 tonne of lithium a year. And again, that could increase. So we'll be the second largest lithium producer in the United States after lithium Americas. Uh, and they've got a, uh, a project in, uh, in Nevada called Thacker Pass. So we're, I think they're planning to produce 20,000 tonne per year. So, and, and again, between us, between lithium Americas, between other companies looking to come online, and there aren't a lot of lithium companies ready to come online in the foreseeable future, the demand for these materials is going to far outweigh the supply. I mean, even if you look at the EU Commission report from, I think it was September, you know, a 10 times increase for rare earths, um, six times increase just in the EU between now and 2030 for lithium and 18 times between now and 2050. And I think those numbers are, are you know, very conservative as well. Um, but that's just from out of out of the EU itself. And, you know, Germany would be sort of the predominant manufacturer in that, but they, they need to supply these materials. So we have a huge mine over here. Uh, we have a number of unique things as well. As I mentioned, there's no stripping. So in mining, that means, you know, let's say you've seen 
projects where you've got a, a huge pit in the ground that's called open pit, and you've got other projects where you see they go underground through shafts and whatever it is. So underground projects are generally more expensive to mine, open pits are le- less expensive to mine. Ours being a mountain, you're essentially letting gravity do most of the work, and it's a straightforward sort of contract mining scenario. So, um, you know, we get contract miners in there, they come in, you're essentially taking down parts of the mountain, letting it, you know, uh, letting gravity do the rest. So it's a, a very cheap way of mining. But then because of the uniqueness of the deposit and the materials and how they respond to various methods, we don't need to do any flotation. We don't have mills. We don't have anything. It, we can actually heat bleach the materials from this project, which that in itself makes, makes the project unique because most rare earth projects, you cannot apply heat bleaching method to it. And the economics of the project are also improved by the fact that you can heat bleach the materials. So when you have, let's say, an open pit mine or an underground mine, you've got a, what's called strip away. In some cases, it can be 50 metres of materials, 100 metres of materials, and that costs a lot of money to do before you start getting to your resource itself. We have no stripping. So from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain, it's fully mineralized. Uh, and in fact, and, and again, this is a geological term, but every part of the resource is what we call above the cutoff grade. So what the engineering firms do when they work out a resource is they give a cutoff grade for sort of where your economics of the mine are, and then anything that's below the cutoff grade, they don't include in your resource estimates, and anything that's above the cutoff grade, they include in the resource estimates. So every part of the block model, if you will, here, and they have, you know, these programs, computer programs that create block models so you can do, you know, understand what the contained resource is, is above the cutoff grade. So... Um, and then, as I mentioned before, we've got existing major infrastructure. So technically, and subject to permitting, we can go in today and start mining the project. It's a very simple and straightforward mining scenario. But that being said, once we put out the, the updated PA in August of 2019, our attention turned to processing. Now, through our predecessor or joint venture partner, TMRC, uh, work was done both for the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy demonstrating that we can utilize uh, continuous ion exchange or ion exchange technology to get high purity separation of rare earths. So in the case of the DOD, there were three rare earths, um, and we demonstrated the ability to do high purity separation. And those materials came from Roundtop. In the case of the DOE, what was very interesting is they asked us to demonstrate the flexibility of ion exchange, and we'll talk a little bit about ion exchange technology and the advantages over solvent extraction, but uh, we took coal waste from Pennsylvania and were able to achieve high purity separation from coal waste in Pennsylvania because... So you were able to get rare many- from coal? Yes, from coal. So there are opportunities for states like Pennsylvania and Virginia to take already mined coal and to turn it into something that can actually be turned into, you know, for, for green and clean uh, energy applications, which is ironic. It's a good irony to have. Um, so iron exchange allows the flexibility to take feedstock, not just from other projects, rare earth projects, but also from secondary sources like coal waste. Solvent extraction does not allow you to do that. It's a a bespoke solution tailored to a particular ore body. And there are many advantages. Solvent extraction involves, you know, putting hundreds uh, of what we call mixer settlers. It's got a big carbon footprint. It's a bulky way of doing things. You can't achieve high purity separation. And, you know, one of the reasons we're using iron exchange as well and I'd like to mention this and sort of ties in a little bit to where are the materials coming from is um, we can get um, or 60% of the materials that will be produced from Roundtop will have a clean green energy application to them, which is the majority of our project will go toward renewables, whether it's EVs, um, you know, wind turbines, et cetera, which means that 
we need to mine these materials and process these materials in an environmentally responsible way. So it means the processing method has to be benign. It means that the way you operate at the mine site itself, so we've already announced publicly that we're going to be using renewable energy on site. And because Texas is well known for the ability to actually have solar farms based on sort of the amount of some you know sunshine per day and how many days per year, et cetera. We have 55,000 acres and we've been already approached by companies both within the US and overseas uh, for them to deploy a solar farm at site. So this is very much going to be a very clean, green uh, mining process. And that's the way it should be. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the messages that's resonated in particular with the Democrats in Congress, and while, while we've seen sort of this bipartisan support, and again, this isn't a question of, you know, pointing the finger at anyone, it's a question of people, including myself, not being cognizant of these things, is you drive an electric vehicle around the streets of the United States that's been sourced with materials that have come from China, which even by China's own admission, it's caused significant environmental devastation, not just to the surrounding areas around the mines and processing facilities, but also to the population where people become very sick. So to put those materials forget about a cell phone, to put them into a, a renewable or a clean application like an EV or, or a wind turbine, I mean, it's nothing short of a hypocrisy. So we have to find ways to mine these things responsibly. Now, China has made, you know, uh, sort of uh, saying that they're going to go about it doing it this way. Well, for us, it'll actually be good if they go about doing it this way because what it'll do is it'll make the price of rare earth materials exp more expensive as well because the reason China sets the price and the prices have been increasing you know, fairly rapidly over the past year or so, but if they turn to uh, sort of strict environmental standards that we're accustomed to in the West, the cost of mining and producing those, those materials will go up even higher. So, you know, from a, from a commercial standpoint, we'd love that to happen. From an idealistic standpoint, we'd love that to happen. But you've seen companies like Apple, you know, talk about being carbon neutral by 2030. You've seen other companies talk about not sourcing cobalt from the Congo because of the, the issues there. So companies have become cognizant of the fact that, you know, where these materials come from makes a difference. And members of Congress have as well. Um, so this is going to be a very clean, green project um, held up to the highest rigors uh, in terms of environmental standards, not just based on what the domestic or local regulatory bodies require, but also going beyond that, like using renewable energy on site and potentially having solar farms and things like that. So we've got, so what we did is in terms of the processing, we knew our processing method uh, is suitable for the materials at Roundtop. It makes the economics better as well. And uh, we can also create or, or, or sort of take the oxides, if you will, and not just create a blend of multiple oxides that then have to go on for further processing, but we can actually break down and fractionalize the oxides into the individual materials. So you have a disposium oxide, a nitrium oxide, a terbium oxide, and, and so on. So, you know, based on the work that had been done and our confidence in our ability to get this done, and, you know, our first hire in the company was actually Mike Vasey, who was the CTO of Linus. So outside of India and China, the only person to have actually successfully built a, a processing facility, which Linus has in Malaysia, um, you know, we knew that, you know, it's a question of optimizing an existing technology. So we announced in December of 2019, we were going to open up our own critical minerals and rare earth processing facility in Colorado. The reason Colorado, that's where the, the technical hub for mining is in the US. You've got your engineering firms. We co collaborate with Colorado School of Mines. You've got the metallurgists there. So what we're doing there is essentially commissioning the pilot plant. 
which what that means is is optimizing the materials that we plan to extract and market and remove or warehouse materials that are either impediments uh, to getting to the next phase of getting the rare earth elements that we want out or materials that have a low value today but might have a high value down the road so we can warehouse them and then process them again later on if those materials change in price. So we're not planning to produce 30 materials at round top. We're planning to produce about eight of the rare earths, the lithium, and one or two other categories. Um, but even just on the basis of that, it's an extremely robust uh, project. So we opened up this facility. We started the work in uh, the beginning of 2020, uh, built out our facility in Colorado, moved everything in there in July, and we've been uh, or June of 2020, and uh, we're well down the path of completing the commissioning of the pilot plant and finishing the next feasibility study, which is very much around the, the processing economics and the flow chart for how the commercial production will take place on site. So you know, sometime later this year, we'll, we'll complete that, we'll move the, uh, the facility or the, we'll, we'll scale up to a, a larger plant in Texas, and obviously the full-scale uh, planned in uh, uh, you know in 2023, and then we have uh, we metals and alloys or metals making. It's not exclusive to China. Um, don't want to touch too much upon that now, but uh, we we have you know various partnerships in place and opportunities in place there. And then the final thing, sort of on the supply chain, which is the uh, the magnet manufacturing, that was a silver lining of COVID. Um, we were going to partner with uh, an overseas company uh, that has magnet manufacturing expertise, a well-known Japanese company, and we were going to provide materials from round top to be processed. Um, and you know, we were going to be a third party to this. Are you going to send them to Japan, or or did they have lines in the United no, States? No, no, no. They were planning to operate the the facility here, so we would send materials from round top when we went into you know. Uh, full commercial production, and they would use our oxides to, you know, to eventually go through to the magnet phase. And then COVID hit, and uh, the uh, equipment had to be sold in April and moved out of Hitachi's facility in May to make way for a new ferret magnet plant. So um, these overseas companies couldn't make it into the U.S. to inspect the equipment, meet with a team. To make a very long story short, we sort of took the bold decision of um, – acquiring the plant ourselves. So it's the only uh, neo-magnet plant or permanent magnet plant in the United States. Uh, we'll be able to produce in excess of 2,000 tonne a year, which is about 20% of overall neo-magnet imports. It will generate revenues of 150 million plus in its first year. And just from two customers that we're aware of, they're looking for 10 times what our capacity will be on that plant. So you can imagine what the rush sort of towards getting non-Chinese magnets is going to be here in the United States, let alone Europe and the EV manufacturers there and elsewhere. So we're, we're going to make a decision in the first quarter as to where we move this plant. It's currently uh, in North Carolina. Um, we have a couple of states in mind that we think are appropriate, and it'll take about 9 to 11 months to recommission it, and then we'll get straight back into the manufacturing. And in the interim, we'll use e-waste, so recycled materials, uh, we've already announced the partnership with a Canadian company called Geomega, who just earlier this week announced uh, success of their pilot program there. And then once Roundtop goes into production, we'll be able to actually take materials from Roundtop and put it through the magnet facility. And we'll potentially be looking at expanding to a second or third magnet facility based on demand and obviously at the appropriate time. 
Awesome. So we're, we're coming close to the, to the end of our conversation. And there are a few things I wanted to drill down on within that. Amazing. That was, you made my job so easy. You just covered all of the questions I had about USA rare earths and that, uh, in your, in your, as we say, Devar Torah. Um, so thank you very much for that, for that great synopsis. When it came to the so this is a question that I had, but you did a phenomenal job of answering. When it came to the decision to to procure the Hitachi Magnet facility, I was really curious about how you decided to build versus buy that. But I guess opportunity um, opportunity is the answer. I guess opportunity striking thanks to COVID is the answer. How does the how do your prospects look for scaling that equipment up? So was that equipment made in Japan? Was that made in the United States? Where does that actual you know magnet production equipment come from? And um, do you have the ability to go buy more of it if you need to at some point in the future? Yeah, I don't want to get into too much detail because some of it is okay. proprietary. But the equipment which Hitachi disclosed, uh, I think they spent about twenty six million dollars on this equipment. It was put together by a particular firm. Some of the things were custom made; others were. Uh, from OEMs, um, we have everything that it takes to um, put it back together and would actually be using the same team that put it together for Hitachi. Um, and then the question about scaling up is, you know, to some extent it can be modular, um, but our first priority is getting this plant up and running and getting to the two or two and a half thousand tonne per year capacity, and then we'll look at uh, expanding beyond that. But we've got the right team, the right personnel, some of the foremost magnet manufacturing experts in the world, um, including some formerly of Hitachi as well. So the reason I asked that question and, and just to give the audience an idea is it's not only where the stuff comes from, but it's where does the stuff that makes the stuff come from that, that is really important when you're thinking about, hey, where does my iPhone actually come from? And I know I'm saying where does stuff come from a lot. Yeah, it's um, not from China. So interestingly, yeah. and I'm not sort of uh, telling any tales out of school here, it has been documented that Hitachi you know, came to the U.S. in 2011. Uh, they operated this equipment between 2011 and 2015. Um, you know, uh, it appears to many that the intention to come to the U.S. before the EV boom uh, was for Japan to form a domestic U.S. company in order to go after China and others who were infringing on their IP. They were successful in that, and once they were successful in that, they sort of shut down and moved to a licensing, uh, more of a licensing model for magnet manufacturing. But in fact, the purpose of coming to China, sorry, to, to the United States, was actually to protect their IP and and to sue China for infringement. So to um to kind of round out this this portion of the conversation, in the audience, there's very likely folks who who are either starting new, new businesses, acquiring new businesses, um, operating OEMs right now. For these for these types of people who right now they're very dependent on rare, on rare earths in in their end products uh, or in their finished goods, uh, or if even if they're not uh, you know dependent on end products for their finished goods, but they're using uh, Nvidia GPUs that they're using to run their machine learning algorithms. How can these folks start to think differently about rare earth supply chains? And are there opportunities for some of them to actually come and source from USA rare earths um, and, you know, bring, say, 10, 20, 30 percent, whatever it might be of their supply uh, of, of rare earths back to the United States? What are some of those opportunities and what are some ways that people can start to frame that and think about that? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a very tough one because, you know, when you look at, let's say, who the end users would be, if you want to look at, you know, 
uh, forget about the government agencies. If you just look at defence contractors, EV manufacturers, I mean, the quantities that they would be sort of uh, procuring in, in offtake agreements or supply agreements would be fairly significant. As I mentioned, I mean, as big as our project sounds, I mean, you could have one customer that could essentially lock up the supply agreement for all of the lithium or, you know, several, let's call it government agencies that would want to uh, take, you know, uh, much of the rare earths that we plan to produce. Um, so I'm not sure if the the individual, if you will, um, is in a position to enter into a supply agreement with a mining project. They would have to get it sort of uh, further down the, uh, the chain, if you will. Um, but I think, you know, I think this is sort of a, an effort by the population as a whole to understand the vulnerability that we have of not being able to just walk into a store at some point in time in two or three years and build anything on mass. And, you know, there was a report that I saw from a think tank in Washington, which goes back to 2014. And, and 2014 is eons ago when you talk about what's happened with advanced manufacturing and, and the uh, critical mineral supply chain and the EVs. But, you know, the, the numbers that they had in there about what a domestic supply chain would mean to the economy, I mean, you have to keep in mind if you've got uh, a vehicle that sells for $50,000, it may have $1,000 or $2,000 worth of magnets in it, but you cannot manufacture the $50,000 vehicle without it. So the economics of having a secure supply chain uh, and manufacturing here, it, it goes into hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs, and it goes into the trillions of dollars. And it has a huge, if we're leaving national security aside, it has a huge impact on the economy because it means we can manufacture pretty much anything we want to manufacture in this country, which we currently cannot do. And, uh, you know, I've been speaking to one company in particular, a well-known company, that has a number of things that have been sort of in the R&D phase and have not been commercialized for a while because they are uncertain about having a secure supply of these materials. So they didn't see the purpose in rolling out these products because they don't know if they're going to have these materials in three years or five years from now. So, um, you know, I think, you know, more relevant to the listeners uh, is sort of being aware of the situation. I'm not going to sit here and have a, a rallying cry for people to call up members of Congress and talk about it, but it doesn't hurt either. Um, but I think it's something that needs to be treated with the utmost urgency. I mean, if you, if you think about the ability of not being able to manufacture anything, unless it comes from China, um, it's, it's very alarming. And it's not, this isn't about China. Um, this isn't about anything nefarious that China is doing. This is very simply, China have uh, well within their rights to want to be the dominant global leader in terms of manufacturing and the export of finished goods. Uh, no one can stop them from doing that. And they're going to do what's in their best interest. And the question is, is why are we not doing what's in our best interest and, and doing it better as well? I think that that is a wonderful place to wrap up this this portion of the conversation, um, Penny. I was hoping to dive into to more of your more of your background and how you came to do some of this work, uh, but it looks like we are we are at the tail end of our of our time for conversation. Um, so maybe we can we can do a part two of something like that, but we can talk about that offline. Uh, to wrap up, I'd love to ask, how can people engage with you, get in touch with you, follow your work, and do you have any calls to action for the audience? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we put out some press releases regularly, um, uh, you know, when, when it's appropriate. Uh, we're a private company, so somewhat different disclosure uh, requirements to other companies, and we're not 
looking to push a share, a share price up right now. Um, so it's more about, um, you know, really focusing on the fundamentals of developing the project, but putting out announcements that are uh, pertinent and relevant and, and things that need to be publicized. Um, you know, we are making plans to take the company public at some point in time uh, in the near future. Um, and we'll obviously make relevant announcements when it comes to that. Um, but uh, I think really it's, um, you know, uh, I've, uh, you know, been asked to, to sort of write some pieces on this and been interviewed lately. And uh, I think my message uh, is fairly consistent as are, as are others in the industry. I'm not the only one with, with knowledge far from it. Um, but I think um, the awareness around this is the most important thing. Uh, and I think the momentum of being able to get, you know, Washington behind it, and, and even more important, I said, than the grants is the legislation that will come out of Washington to ensure that we do have a secure supply chain of these materials. So, uh, you know, we're I'm always contactable. <laughs> My email address is on the press releases that we put out. I can't answer all the emails um, quickly, but uh, try to answer as many as possible. Um, and uh, sort of trying, we're doing two things. We're a trying to create uh, an industry, but also trying to educate people about an industry because we see this as a as a responsibility. And that's that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're collaborating with companies in Australia like Arafura, companies in Canada like Search Minerals. I've been asked by not just investors, but people outside the company, like, why are you helping competitors? And I've responded, they're not competitors. They can come online tomorrow, and there's just room for another five or ten projects to come online, uh, which isn't going to happen in the near term in any case. Um, I think the United States and, and let's call it allied countries, certainly NTIB countries, the European Union and others, uh, Japan, Korea, India, we need to collaborate um, because we need to get these projects online as quickly as possible and do so, you know, in an efficient way and a responsible way. Awesome. I would also implore people to follow you on LinkedIn because your LinkedIn is chock full of, of, you know, bleeding edge industry information about the developments from USA Rare Earths and other things happening in the rare earth uh, industry. You post super frequently and it's helped me learn a lot of what I know now about the space. So thank you for that. Um, well, and also, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we really enjoyed having you, and I'm sure that this was super informative to the to the audience. So thanks so much, Penny. No, thank you, Matt. We appreciate it. People like you that'll get the uh, the word out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.